a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a rock. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, we have Dr. Natalie Glover. She is a clinical psychologist working in a group private practice in the greater Seattle area. Her passion is acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, which actually just shows us that we don't need to change our thoughts or emotions to live a more meaningful lives, but rather our relationship to them. Now, uh, we have a wonderful conversation, guys. She is very, very delightful. Uh, of course, the way to find her will be linked in the show notes. So without any further ado, Dr. Natalie Glover. All right, guys, welcoming to the show. It is Natalie Glover. How are you, Natalie? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so you are a psychologist. So is it Dr. Glover? Should I? Should we do that? It is doctor, but I just prefer Natalie. Okay, Natalie it is. I just want to be respectful here. So, uh, yeah. Natalie, uh, just for my audience that isn't too familiar with you, if you don't mind, just tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, so, I, um, I live in Seattle. I work at a group private practice. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist, so um, I work with people um, with a range of kind of issues, depression, anxiety, um, also just kind of more circumstantial stuff. Um, I really enjoy my work. Um, when I'm not working, um, I like to draw, um, distance run, um, hang out with my partner, two cats, um, from North Carolina originally, but I've been in the Pacific Northwest for about six years. Very cool. And I wore my Seattle shirt just for you. Uh, my dad and brothers, I'm, we all live in Texas here, but uh, we traveled uh, up to, my dad does some business in, in uh, Washington. And so we traveled up there and we did a big uh, fly fishing trip on the Yakima River and we went to Seattle for one day and then we hiked Mount Rainier. That was really cool. Uh, beautiful state. You oh, guys cool. are doing a good job out there. Yeah. So I wore my Seattle, my <laughs> Seattle shirt just for you because I knew you were in Seattle. So uh, let me ask you, what got you into psychology as a profession, as an occupation? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm very type A. So I was in high school when I decided <laughs> on my on my career. Um, it was kind of a, kind of a work in progress the way I, I arrived at psychology. So. Um, because I do really enjoy art. I, my first thought was being an illustrator, but I wanted something that was a little bit more um, financially secure. <laughs> and so that kind of morphed into graphic design. And then I realized that I wanted to do something that was a little bit more interpersonal, working one-on-one -on -one with people, as opposed to learning so much of the um, kind of the technology side of things. And so that um, evolved into art therapy, and then the more I learned about art therapy, the more it sounded a little bit too um, narrowly focused, um, just kind of a, a niche that I wasn't necessarily 
um, looking to sort of devote my life's work to. And so I thought, well, maybe we'll just drop the art part and do that um, kind of as a hobby. And that kind of left me with psychology. Uh, it worked out pretty well because I was never never too good at math and science. And so I figured I, I could kind of skate through undergrad, which I did, <laughs> and then <laughs> kind of put in the work on the back end with the PhD. And so that plan worked out. Perfect. I, I feel like it was a really good choice. Yeah. And yeah. no regrets, huh? You just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Well, what do you, what do you normally like to draw? Are you landscapes? Are you cartoonists? Are you, um, you know, animals? What do you, what do you like to draw normally? My favorite thing to draw is portraits, just black and white with pencil. And so I do a lot of those as gifts and then also a smattering of other stuff. So some landscape, some abstract, um, Occasionally I'll, I'll commission a piece or have someone commission a piece for me, um, a lot of gifts and birthdays and things, but I'd say, um, portraiture is my main passion. So the hardest thing possible drawing people. Okay. Good. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard from other artists. I've I've never had anyone sit for me. I draw them from photographs. So that makes it a little easier. I kind of cheat and grit it out. And you know, it's a lot of math (laughs) in the beginning and before it starts to take shape. Interesting. I, I love art. I've got an affinity for it, but no talent. So uh, I'm very interested in it. So it's always cool to talk to somebody that can um, be artistic in that way. So let me talk to you about the acceptance and compassion therapy that you do. Why specifically that um, AC, ACT do you focus on? Yeah. So acceptance and commitment therapy, we just call it ACT. Um, I I kind of stumbled upon ACT in graduate school. So in graduate school, they were training us under the CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Modality. And um, the CBT model basically says that if you're feeling an unpleasant emotion, depression, anxiety, what have you, um, there's going to be a thought that's causing that. And so the focus with CBT is kind of changing your thoughts to make them more rational. Um, uh, ostensibly so that your your negative emotions will will decrease or lessen. But what I started to notice um, with several of my clients, and I would also put myself in this category, um, is that CBT doesn't always work because the, I'd say our rational mind and emotional minds don't always align. And so you know, you can get really good at identifying, oh, yeah, I know I'm being too hard on myself. I know I'm jumping to conclusions. I know I'm catastrophizing. I know that person who isn't texting me back is probably just busy, (laughs) that they probably don't hate me, but it didn't really take away the negative emotion. Um, And I heard a lot of other people kind of express the same sentiment as well, is that they had a, a feeling that their thoughts were irrational, and they knew they couldn't prove them, but that knowledge alone didn't make them feel better. And so I realized that I liked the ACT model a lot better. Under the ACT model, um, we don't have any control um, over our thoughts. They just kind of show up, right? Um, We can obviously choose to plan or daydream, um, but in terms of our day-to-day experience, our thoughts are just kind of coming at us. We can't choose to ban certain thoughts. Emotions are the same way. We can't just snap our fingers and feel happy if we're sad. Um, And so really the only thing that we can control (laughs) with the exception of when we're asleep or maybe a little too inebriated um, is our behavior. And so um, when it comes to behavior, we kind of have two choices. We can do what's what's in line with our values, um, which is basically um, 
our chosen ways of being in life, um, loving, compassionate, punctual, hardworking, open-minded, what have you, or alternatively, we could live for avoidance. And avoidance is, is a term that we use, um, experiential avoidance, for any attempt to control or fix or manage or distract ourselves from those, those pesky, unwanted um, thoughts and emotions that we, that we don't like. And so instead of trying to change our thoughts in order to feel better, um, in act, we learn to develop a different relationship with our thoughts in order to get better at feeling. And so let's say I was having a thought that I was worthless. You know, a CBT therapist might be challenging that thought. Like, really? Because there are a lot of people in your life who care about you. You've done a lot of cool things. The act therapist wouldn't, wouldn't do that. They're not going to be challenging thoughts because it turns out the more you struggle with thoughts, um, generally the worse they tend to get. It's kind of like quicksand. And so the act therapist is going to say, oh, that's interesting. You're having the thought that you're worthless. Well, how old is that thought? Whoa. How does your body feel when you think that thought? You know, who might have taught you to think that thought? And it's this process of realizing, oh, I'm not really reacting to reality so so much as I'm reacting to my own interpretation of it. And sometimes um, that's enough freedom for us to kind of rest easy and realize, okay, I can't control these emotions in the moment, um, but they're not really based anything, in anything real. Um, and so my work is actually kind of a mashup of ACT and CBT. I still do think CBT has its place and I'll certainly challenge um, certain um, kind of distorted thinking, but I like ACT much more um, because it does give you more control. It really focuses on um, if are you living the way you want to be living as opposed to are you feeling the way you want to be feeling. And a lot of people say, well, well, wait a second. Is she just telling me that I'm always going to be depressed. I'm always going to be anxious and that I just have to accept that and live my values. Well, not quite. Um, the more you focus on living well, instead of feeling good, um, the happier you tend to be over time. And so um, act does work in terms of decreasing negative emotions. That just can't be the goal. So there's a, there's an old band or a band from the nineties called soul coughing. Have you ever heard of them? Uh -uh. Okay, most people haven't, so don't worry about it. But in, in a line from one of their songs, I think it's Idiot Kings, it's, um, I snuffed the thought before it stiff became insistent. Now, what I've found uh, in talking to several people um, in, in this profession, as well as just in my daily life and reading a bunch of books um, on, on similar subjects, self-help and, and thought recognition and pattern, thought pattern recognition, I, I've, I've found that those thoughts when you are able to pay attention to them and you kind of snuff it out before it becomes, like you said, an echo chamber, because yes, it will spiral out of control. And the more you focus on something to not focus on it, the more you're actually focusing on it. And then it builds into this crazy thing. So um, I recently had a gentleman on named uh, Mel Schwartz. He wrote The Possibility Principle. Have you ever heard of this guy or that book? Uh -uh. Okay, cool. Uh, awesome guy. Now, um, he's a psychologist as well. Uh, he does basically marriage marriage counseling. He has a podcast called The Possibility Podcast. His book, though, uh, The Possibility Principle, is simply about thought recognition on a quantum level. So he's not a scientist, per se. Uh, and the way that he explains it is he's very familiar with the principles, but he doesn't do the math, which is fine. You could still grasp a lot of the concepts just based on principles alone, like the interconnective nature of everything. Like, we're all one kind of idea, right? 
So what's interesting about how that pertains to thoughts, and he's got a bunch of exercises about how to anticipate negative thoughts and behaviors before they occur. And in his way of doing it, he's been practicing that for this for quite a while. He's able to help his clients kind of catch thoughts and then alter them as they appear, even sometimes before they appear. And it has to do with just paying attention to the way that your mind works, the way that you receive new information, the way that you feel about how you interact in your environment and your worth and your place in it. So it, it is interesting to hear the difference between CBT and ACT, uh, because it does seem like there is there are thought recognitions occurring in both aspects. One is a little more participatory or one takes a more aggressive look at what it is and then altering it. The other seems to change and act, for instance, in what you specialize in. It doesn't change the thoughts or words. It changes your relationship to them. And I find that very, very interesting. So um, let me let me just shift some gears here on you real quick. Why do you think the world has gone crazy? Hmm. A softball. So we're, we're taking it as a premise that the world has gone crazy. <laughs> Here we go. I knew you'd psychoanalyze this, which is why I, um, I wanted to drop this one in. I'll, I, I'll, I'll agree with you there. It's pretty much gone crazy, although I think it's always been crazy in different ways. That's fair. Um, there are so many different answers to that question. I think... I think a lot of it is just a lack of real connection, you know, as tried as it sounds. I think technology is kind of a blessing and a curse. You know, it the, the ease of communication is obviously um, increased, but the depth, not so much. And so I think, you know, on a, on a global scale, a lot of us are experiencing just a, a sense of loneliness and sort of disconnection from the people around us, even if we are surrounded by other people. Um, I think just sort of the demands of modern life um, are a little bit too cumbersome. I don't think we're meant to kind of <laughs> be slaves to our jobs and, and be expected to manage our relationships and self-care and you know, commune with nature and all of that. Like, I think we're just, we're spread too thin. And then if you add in, you know, socio-political factors, climate change, our imperfect parents, our imperfect genes, our, our brain's natural tendency towards the negative, it's, it's pretty easy to go crazy. So <laughs> I, I think I there's a lot of different factors. I don't disagree with you. And I like that the technology, that what you said about technology being more accessible, but less meaningful. I mean, that's, that's incredibly, uh, it's perfect the way that you put it. I've, I struggle to find words to articulate how perfect that was. So we'll just say perfect. How about that? Uh, you know, and it, it is one interesting thing. So let me ask you this, just on a, if we could just openly speak here, do you think that the way that things are with how divided we are with the way that the parental system and the structure of the home has changed so much, uh, with the way that work is with all of this modern conveniences of society, uh, do you think it was done on purpose? to divide us and to, to kind of uh, enslave us in some way or, or divide us further so that we wouldn't band together and realize our power as a society? Or do you think it was something that's accidental that just is a coincidence of us having the type of technology and lifestyles that we do? I certainly hope it wasn't on purpose. Um, I think... I'd kind of land in the middle of that binary between intentional and accidental. Um, I think that there are definitely folks in power who are sort of promoting capitalism, the patriarchy, <laughs> what have you. 
um, with more or less malignant sort of selfish goals. And so I don't think it was necessarily the aim of those of individuals to, to, to divide and destroy us so much as it is to seek power for themselves without much regard for everyone else. And so I kind of see um, the state of the common man as maybe a byproduct of that, of kind of the selfishness of the people in power. Um, but no, I, would, I wouldn't say there's necessarily anything conspiratorial, conspiratorial going on. I think it's just sort of an artifact of kind of the worst parts of human nature, um, kind of exploiting some of the weaker among us, if that makes sense. Mm, absolutely. And I tend to kind of fall right there in the middle with it. Like it's an unintended consequence or an artifact, but it, it has been driven. It has been recognized as an unintended consequence and then hijacked to kind of perpetuate division. And I think that's just how I feel about it. So we're actually kind of right there, but we're just on this side of the line and we're just talking about it. So um, it, it is interesting. And I wanted to throw the world gone crazy out there at you because I just wanted to see what you'd say. You answered it perfectly. So thank you. I thought <laughs> I'd lob up a little softball there about what the hell's wrong with all of society at you. So um, let me ask you a question. So how do we motivate ourselves more effectively um, through reinforcement? Say a little bit about what you mean by reinforcement. Like reinforcing ideas, reinforcing uh, either habits or uh, people that we choose to be around um, or any type of outlet that we have, such as yoga, meditation, some sort of reinforcing idea that is the direction of life that we would that we are told will calm us, that will uh, subdue anxiety, um, anything like that. Anything reinforcing in the way of a positive mindset rather than negative behaviors and habits that we've formed. Okay. Behaviorally, I think it's really important that we gain a little bit more self insight. I think it's very easy to kind of fall into this autopilot mode um, or a mode of serving others, whether that be um, our, our responsibilities at home or at work. Um, I hear from a lot of my clients that they don't quite know who they are because they're so used to working for others or pleasing others that they don't have the time or the energy to really figure out who they are or what they want. And so I think carving out time for just solitude and self-reflection is really important. Um, anything that allows us to get a little bit of distance from our thoughts and be able to look at them a little bit more objectively, I think is important. And that's where the meditation and the yoga, um, the journaling therapy, all of that comes in. Um, on a little bit deeper level, I think it's important that we all establish a purpose in life. Um, I don't believe that there's any one purpose for any one person. Um, I'm a former Christian. I used to be very steeped <laughs> in that ideology. I'm agnostic now, and I, I certainly have a respect for most religions. But nowadays, I kind of think it's up to us to decide what the meaning of life is, and that can change from hour to hour or day to day. But kind of getting back to that notion of core values, what do I want my life to be about? And that for some, that could be raising a family. For others, that could be um, creating some new um, technology or innovation to better society. It could be working the land. It could just be, you know, keeping your head down. Um, I do think some values are better than others. I, I, 
rank altruism above hedonism, for example, but for, for the most part, I think it's up to the individual to decide. And so um, I think if, if we are to feel that we're living life to the fullest, we establish our values and we find a way um, to kind of self-reflect and make sure that we are on that value-driven path and that we're, uh, as much as we can, um, living in accordance with those values. Mm. Do you think values, uh, are you a nature or nurture kind of a thought person? Um, both. Okay. Really? I mean, personality, I think, is a little bit more genetic than we tend to realize. Um, but there are definitely environmental factors that can turn certain genes on and off and kind of influence that Plinko chip <laughs> to kind of go in different directions. And so I don't know that it's quite 50-50. I think I might be a little bit more on the, the nature side, um, but nurture, especially when it comes to, to deep trauma, um, kind of systemic issues, things like that can definitely have an impact on us as well. So I'd say... Actually, I'd, I'd probably say it, it kind of varies um, from individual to individual, whether nature and nurture played a greater role in, in sort of the, the, the traits that they manifest. Hmm. I think it's, that's a wonderful answer. All right, another softball. You ready? Sure. What is the key to solving life's problems? <laughs> Just lobbing them up for you, Natalie. I think the key to solving life's problems is to develop a greater sense of flexibility about what we consider to be a problem. Mm. You know, um, I was talking with my therapist recently about a family member who um, has a very sort of closed minded view on life and a very specific way of looking at and judging me and my life. And as a knee jerk reaction, it caused me a lot of distress because I'm thinking like, I don't want this kind of relationship with my family. I can't control it. I can't do anything about it. I'm, you know, going to try to get this person to change and see the error of his ways. Um, that did not work, <laughs> unsurprisingly. And my therapist's intervention for that was to say, because I, I kept saying, like, he hurt me, he hurt me. And the therapist was like, he didn't hurt you. It was your, it's your belief that he needs to change that's hurting you. If you accept him the way he is, ironically, in the same way I'm asking him to accept me the way I am, um, there's no suffering there. Sure, there's a little bit of that sting of like, oh, I, I, in a perfect world, this person would be different. But in the world we live in, this person is who they are. And I can still have a very meaningful life without their behavior conforming to my wishes. And I can also choose to focus on their good qualities. And so... Um, another thing that I tell my clients is that if you can't change the situation, change your perspective. And there's a lot in life that we don't have control over. And so I think when we get stuck on a problem, as it were, um, if it's not the case that we can kind of form new habits and work harder um, to, to solve that problem, then we should change our perspective, you know? This is an opportunity for me to shore up my own skills of self-awareness and psychological flexibility and acceptance to just adapt and accept what I can't change. The author, Neil Donald Walsh, the author of the Conversations with God series, and he's written a ton of books. His newest one, God Solutions, fantastic. Um, he 
had an, an example, and I believe the first or second book, I can't remember specifically which one, but he had an example about perception or um, the way that you look at things. And his example was, and a lot of the things that we're upset about or we can't control, they're ultimate realities, right? Meaning we can't control them. You can't control the way that that family member looks at you or judges your life. But what you can do, like you said, is change your perspective or your perception on it. Now, what was interesting and why, why this particular uh, example stuck with me is because it's it's talking about rain and rain being an ultimate reality, right? Rain, you can't do anything about. The only thing you can do is change the way that you view it. So he uses two examples, right? And we can all empathize with these. Um, one time in the rain, it was raining really, really hard. You were dressed up nice. You were going out. You had something to do. And the rain was a burden. It's a, it a pain in the butt. You're just like, come on, man. Uh, and it was something that you were upset about and wasn't a blessing from the sky, you know, kind of thing. But you can also think of another time where the rain was a blessing from the sky after a real long, hot summer. Or, you know, if you go out and make out with your partner in the rain, you know, something, something warm and connecting like that. Uh, and just enjoy it on a deep, deep, deep level. Well, nothing changed about the rain. The only thing that changed about it was the way that you viewed it. Same thing in that that type of understanding, that, that stuck with me so hard because I think about that all the time. Uh, whenever challenges pop up and we're able to recognize that it's just, a, not, and I would say that 90% of it is our perception. If they're not physically harming you in any way, then you're physically harming yourself by taking these types of ideas that they've got about you and then kind of embodying the toxicity in yourself because of their ideas about you rather than just realizing that their ideas and they have nothing to do with you, you know, on a, on a deep level. Right. I just, I like the perception aspect of it because I think it's everything. It, it creates your reality in larger ways than a lot of people know. So I wanted to ask, uh, and it's, it's none of my business. You could tell me it's none of my business. Um, but, uh, was this particular family member religious at all? Yes, very religious. <laughs> and that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, and then uh, same um, prerequisite here. You can tell me it's none of my business, but I am curious because uh, religion and spirituality, those are common themes uh, on this show as well. So uh, what made you lose your faith? I'm holding up air quotes here for the audio only um, listeners. And again, if it's none of my business, you can say so. No, no, I'm comfortable talking about that. Um, it's interesting I always had the sense that even from a young age, that the Western interpretation of Christianity was not doing Christianity much justice. Um, when I was in high school, I believe I attended an Eastern Orthodox church and I was kind of observing their much more ritualistic way of doing things. Um, and the friend that I had gone with had kind of explained that, you know, like with these kind of Western versions of Christianity, you know, you guys really think you had God, have God all figured out. You write books about God and his will and what he wants for you. And we see God as much more mysterious, as more of an enigma. And so um, I think I started to realize more and more that Christianity was becoming kind of warped and bastardized. And, you know, there would be a passage and I'd look up the Greek and the Hebrew and I would study it and I'd be like, this really doesn't mean what your average small town pastor um, is telling you that it means. And I would have debates with family members about, you know, do you really think the earth was created in seven days? The sun wasn't created until the third day. So, why are we measuring days by the sun? Who's to say, you know? And so I was always a little bit more of a, of an intellectual thinker around those things. Um, and then when I went to college, I kind of assumed that that's when I would lose my faith because I decided to major in philosophy. 
And at that time, my faith actually got stronger. So I was I was in Kentucky (laughs) and I became sort of the liberal intellectual Christian that was was sort of the the anathema of just believe. I, I delved into a lot of apologetics and tried to have as rational as an explanation as I could for the faith. But as time went on, I started to notice that I was having to make exceptions for things like, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with homosexuality. I don't think there's anything wrong with getting drunk (laughs) as long as you don't hurt anyone. I don't think there's anything wrong with cohabitating with a committed partner. And so I was realizing that not only were there all these sort of doctrinal points that I disagreed with, but I thought about the world at large and I was well aware that had I been raised um, in a different culture and a different faith, I would be just as ardent about that faith as I was about Christianity. And that seemed very arbitrary. I think the, the hardest bullet for me to bite was that no matter how good or loving or compassionate a person was under the, the Christian worldview, they were going to hell. It didn't matter because it's not about what you do, right? It's about your faith in Christ. And to me, that just seemed way too narrow-minded. And so I didn't so much experience experience this as a choice to leave the faith. But I think over time, I just realized, like, I can't make all of these these excuses anymore. I can't try to cherry pick and... (laughs) come up with verses to say, well, if you're in the jungle and you've never heard the gospel, God's going to judge you by your heart. But if you're in America and you've, you've been browbeat with the gospel, there's no excuse. It just didn't make sense to me. And so um, I do think it's really important to remain open-minded. And so I wouldn't say that I believe that Christianity is false per se. It's just kind of a question mark in my mind. And I'm actually content there. Um, I know that was probably a longer answer than you wanted, but um, my reason <laughs> got the best of me. <laughs> it's the easiest way I can say that. It was wow. a perfect answer. It was articulated perfectly and it was the perfect amount of time and you nailed it. Yeah, no, it was, it was wonderful and wonderfully said. I, I definitely agree with you. Um, uh, there was a lot of holes poked in the, in the idea cause I was raised Baptist. My folks very, very much still religious. Um, I'm very upset that I am not and that's okay. We just have different paths, but I'm just like you, people should be able to do whatever the hell they want. Um, as long as they're not hurting anybody else. And that is another thing. My my mom, God love her, she always says that's so dangerous that people just are, have a live and let live attitude. I'm like, what the hell's wrong with a live and let live attitude? Like that seems to be like the best possible thing, right? In my mind anyway. And yeah, to your to your Bible verse thing, that was that was pretty interesting because I, growing up in, in, you know, my youth pastor, he, he said one time, and I, I just remember this, it just stuck out that the Bible is the one book that never contradicts itself. And so I started digging into that. And it turns out that's not true at all. It contradicts the hell out of itself constantly. Very much does. (laughs) Even the people that believe in the faith, right? Because there was a a thing um, that I think eating shellfish is in the Bible eight times, but there's only two things about homosexuality. And actually the word homosexual in the new version of it is actually a substitute out from the old Hebrew meaning pedophile. So actually it's not even the same word. God actually doesn't have a problem with live and let live. Uh, It's all you people out there 
out there eating shrimp cocktails that he's got a problem with, but still, you know, Christians will serve them at um, mass gatherings and things like that. So, like you said, they, they also will cherry pick. And I'm not here bashing Christianity, guys. Uh, if you're good to each other, just go for it. I think that it has a certain community value, or it has up to this point. I think we're a little bit too enlightened now to kind of uh, keep going with that. But again, it's not, not up to me. Live and let live. You guys go nuts if you want to. Uh, and I do like the uh, Bible verse about uh, let there be light. And then the sun didn't happen until the third day. So what was he using for light? Like, did he have one of those shop lights that he just put up, let there be light, and then created the sun like three days later? I don't know. Anyway, it's just a silly perspective. So uh, let me ask you this then. Uh, let's go a totally different direction. So uh, do you think that we are alone in the deepest sense of the word? <sighs> the short answer would be no. Um, I have a lot of respect for science as I think any intelligent person does. I do, however, believe that science has its limits. So science only covers the empirical, what we can observe with our five senses. And, you know, we're well aware that there are things that we can't observe with our senses. And I don't think that that stops at things like quantum physics. Um, most days I do tend to believe that there are other realms, maybe even of a supernatural nature. Um, I heard some really convincing things about voodoo that kind of scare me. So I would not mess with that. <laughs> I want you to come back to this, um, but go ahead. And so I would not, um, while I don't believe in a sort of a sort of stereotypical God figure, um, I do have the sense that there's something greater that unites us. I don't know that I would consider myself a pantheist necessarily, but I do think that there are supernatural forces at work, that there will always be things that we can't explain. And I, again, I, I would not um, congeal all of those forces into a deity per se, um, but I think that they're, they're at a mes metaphysical level, there's a lot more happening in the world than we know hmm. in the universe than we know. I love it. Uh, so what do you, what do you think though? Um, damn it. I had something great. I was going to ask you and I just lost it because I was thinking about your answer. Your answer was wonderful. Uh, okay. So tell me about voodoo. What's, what have you heard about voodoo? What's up? <laughs> I don't know much about um, it. I, I, I know the doll thing. I know like in Indiana Jones. So I used to go, I used to go to this, this starts with church. <laughs> I used to go to this mega church um, in Lexington, Kentucky called Southland. I have a ton of respect for the, the pastor. I don't know if he's the pastor now. He's probably not, but his name is John Weiss. And he, he was very intellectual and he would basically do deep dives for a year on different topics. And I don't remember if his travels to Haiti were a part of one of those deep dives, but I remember him telling the congregation about it. And just some of the things that he saw, he said that people were jumping over buildings and eating glass and just things that if he had not observed with his own eyes, he would not have believed. Um, I heard a similar story from my uncle. I don't know if this was voodoo, voodoo per se, but he was vacationing in Brazil 
And there was some woman who found him and already knew his name and just like took him into this hut and was like doing all these incantations. And he said that there was like a chicken and she like ripped the chicken's head off and threw it across the room. And then the body ran over to the head and the the head joined back on it. And my uncle is not, um, he doesn't have a psychotic disorder. He doesn't have a history of hallucinating or anything like that. And I've, I've heard just kind of different anecdotal things here and there about kind of the dark, the darker <laughs> type of religions that I'm not a hundred percent convinced that they're legit, but enough to give me pause and just sort of respect it and not, not go near it. <laughs> yeah. Like some occult, like Aleister Crowley type stuff. That stuff is so weird. It's, it's interesting. You know, um, if it's, if true or if people have observed it the way that they feel they did, never heard of the chicken rejoining its head. Um, that's, <laughs> That's a new one, but that's really interesting. I remembered yeah. what I was going to tell you. So, uh, have you ever heard of a, a neuroscientist called Dr. David Eagleman? I don't believe so. Okay, no. I'm going to send you a video of his because it's fascinating. So, he coined the term possibilian, which has to do with uh, we may have, you know, uh, locked in may have maybe what you identify with more than just agnostic or pantheism. So, I he coined the term possibilian, and the reason that he did was is because he's a, he's open to the possibilities, right? And I identify as this pretty strongly. If I had to plant my flag, that would be it. So he came up with the term possibilian because he said that we know too much about religion and the way that it is to the letter to say that it's accurate or meaningful at all to this day. Uh, and then we don't know enough about the universe to say that there's nothing out there at all. He said that sweet spot in the middle is called a possibilian, and that's kind of um, what maybe you— should take a look at i'll i'll send it to you it's really interesting and he's a brilliant yeah. guy he made a haptic vest yeah he made a haptic vest for deaf people that goes off in different patterns based on it hears but it goes off in different patterns and they can process words after a while because of the different patterns it's crazy from people just talking to him the guy is brilliant i'll, I'll send it to you he's one of my favorite people on the planet uh so what do you think about the idea of using psychedelics in treatment for PTSD? I know Dr. Rick Straussman did a lot of work with DMT. I know also lately a lot of people have been using uh, psilocybin cubensis, uh, the mushroom, uh, to kind of treat PTSD, depression. Uh, you hear a lot about microdosing. I don't know if you've looked into that at all or if you have looked into it. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by the topic. I have read very little on it. Um, a few studies here and there, dabbled in a little bit of Michael Pollan's stuff, although I've not read any of his books, but I've heard a few podcasts and things about it. You know, it kind of goes back to this notion that, like the rain, <laughs> nothing in and of, of itself is good or bad. It's, it's the narrative you create around it. It's how you choose to use it. It's how you choose to think about it. And my sense with psychedelics is that if we really hone down the science and figure out how to administer the treatment well, it can be very powerful for people, but because the body tends to kind of acclimate <laughs> to drugs, psychedelics are no no exception as far as I'm aware that the the effectiveness would wear off. I also don't have a lot of faith in people to to use these drugs in the right way or to do the rest of the work in their life required to kind of help the drug work. And so 
Um, I remember reading a study um, when I was in training on internship at the VA and it was about using ecstasy to treat PTSD, but it was like, you know, you have to have an inviting room with warm lighting and just a very comforting aesthetic and soft music. And we're all looking at each other like, well, we couldn't do it here at the VA because with all yeah. of our fluorescent lights and like janky <laughs> old chairs and everything, like it was just the, the, the context had to be so perfect for this to work that it just made me think like, yeah, if we could administer this perfectly, it would be great. But I, I have a sense that the the possibility for things to go wrong outweighs the possibility for benefits. Hmm. But I say that very humbly because I know very little about that research and I know that it's still very nascent and that as, as we learn more about it, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10, 20 years that, you know, psilocybin was as common as Prozac and it probably is healthier. I can't say that. I'm not a big fan of pharmaceutical drugs. Um, but yeah, kind of in a sort of Jurassic Park way, I sort of feel like maybe we don't want to mess with that because I just, I don't have a lot of faith in people, but <laughs> Interesting. I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that someone changes my mind. Well, the studies that they've done on it, what you're referring to is set and setting and yeah, uh, ecstasy or Molly or, um, you know, MDMA or whatever, that's pretty heavy stuff. You know, it's pretty intense. Uh, and that's for severe cases of PTSD. I have heard of that as well. Now, uh, one of the interesting things about psilocybin cubensa specifically, or the mushroom, uh, is that they have found that you can actually dose a certain milligram, uh, that doesn't make things sparkle, right? That's how the, uh, the scientist, uh, the doctor said it, that I read the article about he said, if things sparkle, then you, you want to dial it back. Right. But they've actually got capsules and, and you're you're supposed to take it, you know, but like you, we're, we're leaving this up to that people will just take the recommended amount and then, and then that's good enough. But you, you do, you do it on a regimen because like you said, yes, you can get used to it and then it loses its effectiveness or it starts to do more damage than, than helpful. Uh, and so you, you do regulate the dosage, you do regulate the milligram amount, and then you take a certain amount of time off. You do like five days on seven days off, something like that. But the studies that have come back have been fantastic, you know, of, of mushrooms specifically. And, you know, they're not addictive uh, because they're natural, right? You're not throwing chemicals in your body. And so uh, the, the things that I have seen, it, I, like I said, it was a blind question. I just asked you out of, the, out of the dark. I didn't know with your research if you'd come across it or had anybody in your practice that was using these or implementing these kinds of ideas, especially being in Washington. I'm actually surprised that they don't do more of that kind of stuff up there. Yeah, there's been talk of it, but I, I don't know anyone... Um, I do have a friend from college who works works with a, a research lab that that kind of studies those things, but none of my direct colleagues. Um, I think it should be looked into. I think it's a somewhat promising avenue. So again, I'm I'm kind of in support of of doing all the research that we can and and seeing who we can help. Yeah, especially with the natural you know means, because I'm I'm like you with the pharmaceuticals. I'm not a fan. I just you know I. To me, the, the actual Western medicine uh, is just there to treat people, not to cure them. Uh, they don't make money off the cure. They make money off the treatment. So yeah. anyway, uh, so uh, we'll probably wrap it up here in a little bit. Um, I've been having a lovely time speaking with you. This has been great. So I just hey, wanted boy. to thank you before we hang up here. Um, so I had some fun questions. You just want to have some fun with this here right at the end? Sure. Go okay. for it. So uh, genie bottle washes up on shore. You get three wishes. Anything you want. Can't wish for more wishes. That's breaking the rules. Ooh, um, I 
have a clarifying question. Okay, sure. <laughs> Can these wishes be for others or do they have to be only for me? The only caveat is that you can't wish for more wishes. So absolutely they could be for other people. It's very altruistic. Okay. Um, I think my first wish would be that everyone be given the opportunity at least to kind of better themselves, whether that be in, in whatever way they need it the most. For some people, I think that's financial. For some people, that's emotional. Um, for some people, that's relational. But, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately just about how uneven the playing field is. And like, that not only are we not really created equal, but we're not treated equally either. And so, something that would sort of level that playing field a bit. I don't know exactly what the wish would be, but again, just that maybe that every person be kind of cut a little bit of slack in the area that they needed it most. And hopefully that that would have a domino effect. Um, do you think, and I just wanted to clarify the question. So do you think maybe a socioeconomic reset would be the way to go? Like everybody started a certain amount of money and everybody started a certain amount of opportunity. Do you think that that would be enough to kind of balance the equation a little bit? Or do you think it's not really to be honest, because I think while a reset would benefit some people who a lot of people who didn't have a lot of opportunities, it would also sort of like erase the work of people who had worked hard to earn what they have. Yep. Yep. And so again, it's a, it's a very nuanced thing that would have to happen. And maybe I would have to really ponder that. It's interesting. Um, but maybe increasing the potential, like getting rid of the the, the glass ceilings mm. that people hit. Okay. Um, so not necessarily solving the problem for them, but giving them real opportunities to fix the problem because I, I not everyone has those. Yeah, changing the lights from red to green for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Metaphorically, of course, because we have traffic laws and that would just be utter chaos. Okay. So sure. second yeah. second wish. I didn't mean to break yeah. it. I just wanted some clarification. I think my second wish would be for an end to climate change, <laughs> that it would become impossible for us to kind of screw the world up the way we have and continue to keep doing. Um, and my third wish, I think it's a toss up between ending animal cruelty and getting my parents to treat me well before they die. <laughs> 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 I'll go with the animal cruelty one. My parents That's, are old. It's I don't um, I don't know your parents, so, but the joke I would make would be the animal cruelty one seems a little bit more attainable, right? Yeah, <laughs> probably getting all yeah. animal and cruelty those, around the world. These are, right? these are my answers on the fly on a podcast. I'd mm -hmm. probably be a lot more selfish in the moment. So. Well, the, what, I, what I like about this, and this just kind of, it's just a way to have some fun with this because it really, uh, I think, doesn't give you prepare time to prepare to think about this stuff. It's it's more of a, I don't know, just, yeah, because if you had time to prepare, of course we could give more uh, calculated and more um, thoughtful answers to it. But I like the, I like the on the fly stuff and we don't judge here. You know, those were perfect answers because they were real. They were, they were what you really think. Uh, okay. So if you could delete anything from the world, remove it completely as if it never existed, what would that be? Including c concepts. Oh yeah, anything. Or do you mean tangible? 
tangible, tangible ideal concepts. Like if you think SpongeBob <clears throat> has been the downfall of our society, and you think that if SpongeBob never existed, then you could just remove it altogether, whatever you think. I think it would be ego, honestly. Like I think you know, there, there's so much pseudo-psychology and it's especially like an Instagram culture and all of that around self-esteem and loving yourself. And, and it all sounds very nice on the face of it, but it's all ego. You know, um, one of my favorite quotes is from the founder of Headspace. So he, he trained as a monk, his name's Andy Puttacombe. And he says, what are the, whether we think we're the best in the world or the worst in the world, it's all ego. There's no objectivity or truth to that. And I feel as though if, if we did, if we weren't so tied to this notion of what will people think of me? Do they think I'm not good enough? Do they, who does she think she is? Is, is she unworthy? Is she unlovable? Is she this? Is she that? Who's judging me? What do I need to be better than the Joneses? Do I need this you know, I think that would solve so much in terms of pride and materialism and selfishness and violence. If we could just actually experience ourselves as one, because <laughs> we are, but it really doesn't feel like that most of the time. Yeah. Um, so, which we'd probably feel that way if we were all on mushrooms all the time. So uh, you beat me to it. I was waiting. Yeah. Uh, that's threads running through all of this. They're not lost on me, but yeah, I think, I think ego is the ultimate downfall. And I, I think Christianity would say that too. You know, it's not so much God versus evil, but God versus self. So God's, God versus the idea people have of God and God doesn't speak up for himself. So therefore that idea runs rampant. And that's one of the issues I've got with organized religion in particular is the word interpretation. It can be interpreted, uh, not a fan of its validity as far as uh, your eternal soul is concerned, if that's the idea or the concept, right? So uh, yeah, psychedelics is what you're talking about. Everybody needs mushrooms. So uh, Natalie over here on the podcast, <laughs> you said, uh, just issue everybody's uh, psychedelics and we're good to go. It's it's kind of like, um, you know, like in Batman, when the villain always wants to dump something into the water supply, well, they should just dump a bunch of mushrooms into the water supply. And I think it would solve a lot of things, you know? Because uh, I'm with you. I think that the narcissistic parts of ego are uh, incredibly damaging, not only to society, but to self as well. The advantageous parts of ego, and it's that double-edged sword, it's that two sides of the same coin thing, are survival. And, you know, being able to get the hell away from a wolf that's charging you, you know, those kind of things, self-preservation, right? In a, in a strictly pure, raw, primitive sort of a state, ego is beneficial. But yes, given a soft society, given, you know, running water and shoes, you know, on your feet and the ability to take a thousand pictures of yourself to find the perfect one. Yeah, that part of ego we could all do without. I completely agree with you. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, you could have dinner with anybody. Uh, time, distance, language does not matter. Uh, anybody in history. Um, well, who would you have, like to sit down for an evening meal with? Three or lunch, whatever you. Oh prefer. God. I have no idea. Um. I really have to give that one some thought. That's like, fair. Off the top of your head, who just instantly are you thinking about? Maybe one of the the great 
psychologists of our day might be Carl Jung yeah. or not Freud, definitely not Freud. Um, but <laughs> one of the sort of psychological founding time. fathers. I'd, I'd have to give some thought to which one, but you know, I I read a lot of self uh, self help and psychology and kind of psychologically oriented things, but but that's not the same. I think is just really picking the brain of one of those great authors or thinkers. So it would probably be something along those lines. Cool. Okay. Great. Yeah. So those two and me. Got it. No problem. Yeah, we'll we'll meet up. We'll we'll get Carl <laughs> Young to hang out. We'll get the time machine going. Uh okay, so uh let's say time machine. Uh the one is invented. You have the ability, you can only pick one to go to the past or to the future in any spot in time in the past or the future that you would like to go. Which direction on the linear timeline would you go and you know why? The first answer that comes to mind, this one probably is a little bit selfish. I'd probably go to the end of my life, sort of deathbed scenario, assuming that I die on a deathbed, which is a big assumption. <laughs> um, but I'd probably just look to see if I had any regrets and then take what I've learned and do the things <laughs> that, I, <laughs> that I ended up regretting not doing. That's a great answer. Uh, that's that's my selfish answer. My altruistic answer would probably be different, but okay, I'd, I'd have to really sit down and think about how, you know, the repercussions of that. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So. Okay, then. Yeah, but probably future. I don't think I'd go to the past. It it would definitely be future. Okay, like not, not, like to go see the dinosaurs or something like that. No, nah. not interested. Okay, cool. Seeing Jurassic Park <laughs> doesn't end well. Forget it. They had their shot, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, then to that point, I've never asked anybody this question, but if you could know how and when you die, would you do it? I don't think so. Okay, why? I think I would be too focused on it. And I'm already an overthinker. And so I think that it would make me just a little bit too analytical. Um, I'd probably also, depending on when and how it happened, feel some sort of moral pressure to tell the people in my life, which I think then would cause them a lot of distress. And I just, I don't see anything good coming out of that. So I would rather not know. I think one of the one of the things that makes life most meaningful, obviously, is our mortality. But I, I think the knowledge that we could die any day makes us live with a lot more urgency. And I think that's part of what drives my living life to the fullest is that, you know, I'm not necessarily going to live into my 80s or 90s. And let's say that crystal ball said, my grandmother's 103, you're going to live to be 104. Like I might just kick back and take it a little bit too easy. <laughs> yeah. Or <laughs> like know? nothing you do. Right. So you start partying like crazy. You start doing drugs. You start skydiving. Yeah. <laughs> you do all kinds of crazy stuff. Cause you know, you're indestructible at that point. Right. It's true. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay. No, I, I, I like that yeah. one. Yeah. And I agree with you. And this is kind of the idea that, you know, if time is, 
you know, not linear, but stacked, you know, all time happens at once, you know, these, these amazing thought experiments that everybody goes on, that that's one of the reasons that we can remember the past and we're in the present, but we don't know the future, you know, because it, it takes away free will, it takes away your ability to live life to the fullest, all of these kind of, it kind of skews um, or retards the uh, experience a little bit, it perturbs the experience. So I, uh, I tend to subscribe to that as well. I, like I said, I'd never asked anybody that, but I was curious because I have the same feeling about it. I don't want to know, you know, and yes, for the same reasons, you're going to dig with the process right okay so i wanted to ask you uh and actually let me come back to a question then we'll wrap it up uh, i had one written down here because i was curious what do you so do you work with relationships at all like people's relationships to other people in a romantic sense or is it strictly focused on the individual i do um i don't do couples therapy per se i, I dabbled in that in graduate school but i kind of found that I generally sided with one person and it was obvious <laughs> it's not supposed to be so obvious in couples therapy but that being said um it is common that i will um allow an individual client to bring their spouse or partner in for three or four sessions give or take um just to kind of work on the relationship and in in those cases i'm generally serving as kind of a mediator um, to kind of try to cultivate greater communication, understanding within that relationship. Okay. One of the reasons I was asking is because how do you think that online dating has affected the longevity of relationships or has it affected the longevity of relationships? Do you find that it's just as natural or just as fulfilling as, you know, like like my wife and I, we met just out in the wild, right? We just met out in the wild, like the old school, how you do it. I, I don't know because all the swiping and stuff, and thank God, and we, we talk about this too. We've been married, it'll be seven years this year. I've been together like 12, but we, um, thank God, uh, got together before all the dating app stuff was a thing. Like we didn't have to go through that, you know, so we're grateful for that. Uh, I didn't know if any of your uh, clients or patients in particular had mentioned, you know, the, or ha if you've been able to associate the ones that have gone the dating app route, if they've had more of a challenge than people who have gone just the found it in the wild route, or if they go through partners a little bit quicker, if they're less, I don't want to say committed, but if they're less, uh, they find the relationships less valuable because they were so easily obtained, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I think online dating is one of those things, again, contextually, that can be the greatest blessing or the greatest curse. Um, I experienced it as a blessing. So I met my partner, um, who, who is a life partner at this point. We're not married yet, but we will be. Um, I met him on Bumble um, after four years <laughs> okay. of swiping. And that was a very maddening process, but it was also a very meaningful process. Um, and I met a handful of really good people, a few of whom I'm still good friends with today. And so I really don't have any regrets where that's concerned. And so I think the best way for me to answer this question, I guess, is just in terms of the pros and cons. And so I think the, one of the pros of online dating is that it allows you to meet people that you would have never run into otherwise, you know, like my partner and I moved to Seattle around the same time, but like we never ran into each other. We probably never would have if not for these apps. And I think most of us geographically just kind of have a certain route that we take through life and we don't deviate very much from that. And so I like it because it opens up this kind of world of possibility for us. Um, 
the cons, as I think you were kind of alluding to, is that it does kind of commodify people a little bit too much. And because there are so many people available to us, I think it makes us try a little bit less hard. Um, and I've heard from a couple of friends and clients that the online dating climate is getting worse and worse. Just this sort of ratio of like DTF versus I'm looking for a long-term committed relationship is starting to get more and more skewed, unfortunately. And I don't know that I would blame online dating as the true culprit for that the same way I wouldn't really blame social media as a culprit for anything. I think these, these things are more just tools that kind of sharpen the best and worst parts of us. And so I would really say like, in terms of the longevity of relationships, I don't think that there's one answer to that. I think it depends on whose hands that dating app is in. You know, there are people who meet their lifelong committed partners on dating apps that they would have never found otherwise. And there are people who just swipe for an ego boost and just, you know, recycle people or just kind of discard them. And so, you know, overall, I'm inclined to believe that maybe they're doing more harm than good, but I, there's also no way to quantify that. So it's just, it's super complicated. I, I don't know that I'd say it has any direct effect on the longevity of relationships though. Cause I, again, I think it comes down to the person and how they view relationships. I think we do give up too easily. We throw in the towel. <laughs> I think a lot of that is due to our expectations about relationships. I, my partner is going to make me happy at all times. And this is going to be wonderful. And the oxytocin is just going to be flowing and the new relationship. Energy. No. And a lot of people, I think they reach a point where they're, they're bored or they hit a rough patch and they think, Oh, it's time for a breakup or divorce. When a lot of times it's like, no, like <laughs> look, you know, try a little harder to make your own life meaningful. Your partner is not the problem. You know, this isn't supposed to be exciting all the time. And so I think it's more about the person than the app. Completely agree. I think it is more of a subjective type of an uh, operation as well. I, I completely agree. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that, uh, because I tend to think that uh, mm -hmm. soulmates, if you want to believe in this cosmic thing, then soulmates will meet whether they're meant to meet or not. And soulmates, if they facilitated that through an app or the old school way of, you know, sweaty palms walking up to somebody for the first time, you know, and, and attained it that way. I, it's in my mind, like I, like like you were alluding to as well, that you know it's pretty easy to just swipe, 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 swipe. There's no real maybe effort to put in, and there's no real danger. I would say psychologically or emotional danger of getting rejected in person. That's a totally different thing than you know getting just uh, swiped left on or just a no thanks, you know hashtag lol, and then that's it. And you're just like, okay, well there's another you know a thousand or a million right behind it. You should do an app that's uh, DTLTR down to long term relationship. Um, that would be a, that'd be a good one. Kind of, kind of leaves it open, you know. Uh, okay, well, um, Natalie, I can't thank you enough. This has been a, a real treat getting to speak with you, and I'm really glad that we connected. Uh, did you? Me too. <laughs> thank you. Did you have uh, anything else that you wanted to say or anything, or how they can find you if you want to be found and all of that? Um, yeah. Again, I would just thank you for having me on. I've never done a podcast before, so this is really cool. Um, and yeah, to, to contact, um, Instagram is probably the best way. Um, you guys can give me a follow on my handle is emotions doc. 
um, and happy to um, receive any DMs if any of you guys have any um, follow-up questions on anything that we've discussed here or anything else about psychology. Happy to um, read and respond to those. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This is so interesting. And you're, you're lovely. You're an absolute delight. So thanks again. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. I want to give a massive thanks to Dr. Natalie Glover for spending some time and offering some of her wisdom and insight into the human mind uh, with us today on the show. Incredibly grateful. Of course, the way to find her will be linked in the show notes. As far as this show goes, guys, you can find us at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where all the links to all of the socials will be, as well as the link to YouTube. If you want to check out any YouTube videos of any conversation that we've had on the show, uh, go there and that's how you get there. That's your conduit. So, uh, of course, you know what I'm going to say. Uh, move out into your day and just pick up a piece of litter, pet a strange dog, hold a door open for a stranger, smile. Not creepily, just, you know, a nice, friendly smile at everybody that you see. Uh, just try it out for a day and see how it works. Uh, buy somebody a meal or a coffee in line behind you. It makes a massive difference. And think about you making that difference for that one individual and then it translating into the way that they react and treat everyone throughout that entire day. And you're a little responsible for that. And that's that's a good, warm feeling. So uh, as well as get out of that left-hand lane. Uh, it's annoying and you guys know that. Uh, as well as just move on about your day, guys, and just be good to one another. That is the main thing. Just be good to one another, okay? Uh, thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time.